Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I am Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of natural problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geosciences, I, with the help of our guest and occasional co-host Silvia, will take care of feeding you all the information that you need in a casual and fun environment. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Lucia Perez-Diaz, a senior geodynamicist at Halliburton. However, Lucia is also an illustrator and a member of the Tech Core of the Tectonica Journal, uh, Diamond Open Access Journal. Don't know what that is? Don't sweat it. We'll ask her about it. We'll chat about that and many other interesting ways of communicating sciences. Hey, Lucia, welcome to Nice Chats. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, I'm joined also by my co-host, Silvia Volante. Hi, Silvia. Hi, hi, Vitor. Hi, Lucia. It's very nice to have you here and thanks for um, finding the time for the interview. <laughs> yeah, thanks for inviting me. Um, we always like to start our podcast with a little game just to break the ice. And today we're going to play a game called Ripple Midis. So I'm going to give you a riddle to solve, and you need to give me the correct answer in order to win. And these are all geoscience-related riddles. Like the last time that we played this game, I realized that the riddles were way too hard for anyone to guess. So I tried to, <laughs> I tried to, to make them easier, but I'm not sure. We'll see. I'm terrible at riddles, so I think the oh chances God. of me winning anything are very low. <laughs> It's okay. So what, I'll, what I'm going to do is I'll do the riddle. I'll give you and the listeners some time to think about an answer. And then maybe I can sprinkle some, uh, some tips or something, you know, some hints. Okay. Uh, just a reminder for the listeners, if you prefer to skip the game and just go straight into the, the most, most interesting part, uh, just check the timestamp on the show notes and I'll, I'll tell you there where to go to. Okay. So the first riddle is, if you feel... One of these, finding a safe place, it's a must, as the ground moving is caused by vibrations in the Earth's crust. Okay, earthquakes. Yes! Boom! Okay. Spot on! I, Listen, did you're one, not, you're... I did one. I can relax now. I've done one. <laughs> Never mind about the rest. Uh, you're good at them. Come on. It's not that easy. Okay. This one, I'm actually quite proud because I wrote it myself. While the other ones, I just got it from the internet. My name comes from the island of ice. My sight can be divine. When ejected, water sprouts upwards and falls back down the line. Okay. 
no, the one I wrote is difficult. Geyser? <laughs> Yes! 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 I wasn't sure what the English word is. I knew the Spanish word. <laughs> but uh, What is the Spanish word for guys? Heiser. So it's quite similar, really. But mm, Okay. Yeah. Man, I'm really happy that, uh, that you got <laughs> <laughs> uh, Right. The last one. Final okay. one. This has hardly any atmosphere, which means that there is no rain. It's a place that orbits around the Earth, which we can see wax and wane. Uh, the moon. Yeah, yeah, man, you got all of them. Come on, you're yeah, so good you at go. this game. <laughs> <laughs> You're good at good. Uh, I was like doubting myself. <laughs> hey, listener, this will be the last episode of the second season of Nice Chats. On the first episode of the season, when we chatted with uh, Catherine Goodenough, we promised you a 10 episode long season. However, I'm sorry to say we will not be able to keep our promise. But it is for a good reason. We are suspending our work on the Nice Chats podcast because we're working on another exciting GPN project. So follow the Geology Podcast Network on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening to this now in order to get a notification whenever an episode for any GPN podcast is released. Also follow GeoDrB on Insta and Twitter to get more news on this new project of ours. And listen until the end of this show, because we discuss it a bit with Lucia. Lucia, not all of our listeners are familiar with the publishing systems. Um, of course, most of our listeners are academics themselves, but we have a lot of students that listen to the show. We have some non-geos as well, like Sylvia's mom is an avid listener. Um, so how does the system works? Why is it such an important part of research publishing? Um, I mean, you can have the kind of nice romantic answer or you can have the <laughs> less nice real answer. So publishing is really important in science because if you don't publish, if you don't share in some way your results, then nobody's going to find out about them. Science doesn't really advance if we're not sharing what we're doing and science advances like as a result of our collective effort. So publishing is like a, a it should be, I should say, a way to do that, to put your work out there for others to read and then to build on that. Um, I think for a lot of people, certainly for a lot of colleagues and people that I often talk to, they're a bit disillusioned with the publishing landscape because it kind of, feels like it takes advantage of scientists but then you don't get as much back as you should so normally when you're publishing with a traditional journal you prepare your manuscript you submit it to an editor that is often somebody that volunteers for the journal then that manuscript goes to review uh, the reviewers are often also or almost always volunteers it gets reviewed hopefully gets improved and eventually might get accepted at which point you'll get a hefty bill for normally thousands of 
dollars or pounds or whatever currency um, in order to publish that research. And say you pay that, you publish that research, then it doesn't end there because then for somebody that wants to read it, unless you have published uh, in what is called open access journals, otherwise the reader also needs to pay in order to access the published Many, uh, the published papers so you get the authors paying to publish then the readers paying to access that research and because they have to pay to read that it's also like for many people that can't maybe pay to read papers then it's a very big and hard to overcome barrier to accessing science so our original point that we publish in order to get our research out there doesn't really work if it's hidden behind a paywall um, so I guess that's kind of it in a nutshell. I guess the other thing I, so the, the nice, um, the romantic ideas, yeah, we publish, we get our research out there for others to read. Then there's the other side to things, which a lot of people will um, also be thinking of, which is that we also publish because unfortunately, one of the ways that uh, we are assessed as researchers or uh, our productivity is assessed is by how much we publish and where do we publish and all of these things. So actually, Sadly, a side of publishing is simply to, to survive and to be able to get a job in the future. You need to publish. Yeah, it's the whole point of uh, finding a way to quantify how much work you've done. And um, in the case of people that work with like patents and software, things like that, it's even harder because a lot of the times they're not considered as a valuable metric of the work that you did, which is really, really hard. And that's something that the um, the main like uh, research funding uh, institute or I don't know what's called the DFG in Germany they actually started considering um, other sources of of uh, work as like you know valuable input for proposals. So now, for example, mm. if you publish open access software, if you publish like something on a database, something like that, they that is taken into account for the assessment of your um, of your CV, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, and, and it should be. But mm. unfortunately, I think for most people, the experience is that those are kind of second class yeah. uh, contributions, which is far from the truth. But mm. that's how traditionally they're perceived, which is quite discouraging, I guess. You know, back to what you were saying, pretty much what, what the current most common uh, type of, of publishing that scientists do is you pay to get the paper published uh, and you pay to access that paper that was published. So Tectonica is a bit different from that, right? How is it different? Well, first of all, what is Tectonica and how is it different from these traditional journals? So Tectonica is a new journal. So we launched in May, 2022. So it's only a few months old now. Uh, I mean, it's been a couple of years in the making, so I guess not that young. Uh, and it's a community-led and community-built diamond open access journal. It publishes research in a broad range of topics, but let's say across structural geology and tectonics. Um, and we're not really pioneers. Actually, there is a journal called Volcanica, and they were the ones that really started this. Uh, certainly, they, they've helped us a lot at Tectonica, and we've learned a lot from them, followed their example. They're also a diamond open access journal. And what 
them and us and others um, do is basically we have no fees for anyone. So uh, publishing with us is free for authors and then accessing uh, papers published in Tectonica is free for readers. And that's the main difference. We just have no fees because what we want is to have a platform where science is truly open and anybody can submit to us regardless of whether you have funding, whether you don't, if you're a student, whatever it might be. In other ways, it's it's exactly the same as any other journal you can think of. All articles are handled by an editor, they're peer-reviewed, and so on. And um, even for paying journals, those positions, editors and reviewers, normally are taken up by volunteers. So it's always quite uh, surprising to me when people ask, well, how can Tectonica be free? Surely these other journals charge a lot of money because they that money is used for some something. But actually, the cost behind running a journal is very, 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 very small to the point that we can do this. I mean, it's Tectonic is just a group of scientists that at some point uh, decided we don't like the publishing system, let's try to do something. And then we saw what Volcanica was doing so successfully because they've been up and running for a few years now mm-hmm. and just thought, okay, let's try to do this. And Together with us, there's uh, also Seismica, uh, pretty much launched at the same time as us. And I know of at least two other journals. There's Sedimentologica and Geomorphica that are working towards launching as well. So it's a growing movement, like a collection of journals where you can publish for free, you can access science for free, um, and hopefully it'll be they'll become quite strong over the next few years and we'll really see this become like the new wave publishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I also thought that uh, as soon as I saw this initiative, it was actually uh, interesting to see that finally, like that, uh, eventually are coming uh, to be established these new journals, open access that uh, uh, kind of uh, overcome all these other type of journals that we've been talking about. And for that, actually, I was quite interested into trying to contribute to Tectonica. That's why I actually contacted Tectonica via Twitter, via the Twitter account, um, and asked how I could be involved with it in any sort of kind of uh, topic or form, exactly. Mm. So um, if, there are, if the listeners are, for example, uh, uh, interested in uh, contributing or being involved into Tectonica, how would that be a way to do so? Uh, there are a few ways. I hope I replied to you on Twitter. I'm meant to manage the Twitter account, but like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you did, you did. Okay, you good. Did reply. So um, we already know the answer, but we want to. Okay, yeah, that's good. No, I just sometimes like messages go to like, I don't see them or, but yeah. So there's a few ways that people can support Tectonica. The maybe like easiest one is to tell others about Tectonica. So to tell other colleagues, because we try to, reach out so we're on twitter uh we sometimes email through distribution lists or we might be at a conference and have a poster or something but there's always people that we're not reaching i'm sure it's a really big community so one of the easiest ways to support tectonica or any of the diamond open access journals is by spreading the word and like telling colleagues or encouraging people hey you know there's this journal we could consider submitting to it that's a second way is submitting your manuscript to tectonica um Mm -hmm. Um, then the third way is reviewing for Tectonica. Lots of us already review for other journals, so why not review for one that is, you know, 
not taking money from authors or readers, but actually trying to to uh, just publish uh, an open science for everyone. The way to do that and the way to also submit is the same, which is going to tectonica.online, which is our website. The link is also in our Twitter um, and registering. So when you register in the website, then if you ever submit a manuscript, you're already registered to do so. And um, it will also ask you if you would consider being put into the database to be a reviewer. So the more people that do that, then the bigger that database is and it's easier for our editors to find reviewers as, as papers come in. Yeah. Right. And um, I don't know, I've, I've been following the journey of Tectonica through social media and mailing lists, like you mentioned, but I'm wondering, have you had a paper published yet uh, through the journal or no? Not yet. So at the moment we have 12 papers in review. So it's actually been really nice uh, since I think... Within the first week that we opened submissions, there was already papers, which was really great. So yeah. I think there's something like 11 or 12 at the moment, and they're in review. So okay. it won't be long, I expect, because some of them are already like either in the process of revising the manuscript or on the second round of review. Um, mm -hmm. The way that we plan to release papers is that when something is accepted, it will be typeset and put into the nice uh, paper format and then released online as soon as it's ready. We're not, mm -hmm. you know, we have no intention of making authors wait for a volume to come out. So papers will come out as they're ready. And then at the moment, we're planning on twice a year uh, having all of the papers, say, for, for the six months, uh, collected into a nice volume with some additional mm -hmm. content, probably in a nice, lovely cover, make it into a a downloadable PDF so you can get it and you're getting some extra content as well um, as well as the papers that have been published within the last six months. Um, something else that uh, I was curious about you mentioned the typesetting um, is that's going to be also done by volunteers? Yeah so and actually those are positions that we will be recruiting people for soon so mm -hmm. something that we would like to do within the Tectonica team. There's like a few different teams. At the moment, we have a team of associate editors and a team of executive editors. And between those two groups, there is a lot of collaboration and there's a lot of mentorship happening as well. So the executive editors all have vast experience in editing for journals. Some of the associate editors do too, but some have never edited before. And it was quite important for us to... Uh, offer people that haven't edited before but that are interested a way to learn the job if you like so they always work with an executive editor that is kind of being a mentor um, to them in some way and mm -hmm. with typesetting and copy editing again it's a way for people to kind of enter the journal team mm -hmm. and start seeing how like the practical aspects of how does a paper go from being a manuscript to being you know the final product and possibly from there, if they find that they're interested in editorial roles and so on, they can kind of move through the journal teams as well. But, yeah, I uh, think that's a great idea. Um, I actually became familiar with you and your work, not really because of Tectonica, but I saw your illustrations on Twitter, actually, the flat type, right? Mm -hmm. What is the flat type exactly? But the flat type is a name I came up with because I thought I can't have two Twitter accounts with the same name. <laughs> so I have my personal one or my science one, which is just my name. And then 
Um, I do mostly flat illustrations, so illustrations where there is no 3D dimension, it's, it's just 2D. So I thought, yeah, okay, that's an okay name. Um, and that's what's been called now for a few years, I guess. I've always liked, you know, I'm always the person that is kind of sitting in a meeting and kind of like doodling on a piece of paper, you know, or like, uh, so a few years ago, I just thought, well, maybe I can actually make something useful out of that and not just waste time doodling, but actually make something a bit more useful. Um, I see. And so what uh, then it inspires you to make uh, uh, those illustrations that you <sighs> share at flat type? I mean, it depends. Um, there's a bit of everything. There are some projects that I illustrate for that are quite well defined and where the illustrations are for a particular topic or, uh, you know, it's a project in itself. And then sometimes I might just, I don't know, like say on Instagram, I might just have a, a few weeks where I'm constantly drawing animals with clothes on or like a bear in a winter jumper or an owl in glasses just because mm -hmm. I don't know like it's again it's very much just like I'm doodling on a piece of paper for no reason sometimes I just have an idea and it, for me it's very much a, a way to kind of relax and I'll just put some music on and just do that in the same way that somebody else might paint on an actual canvas and so uh, there's not always a reason behind mm -hmm. <laughs> the illustration. That sometimes there is. Sometimes I, I don't know, maybe a particular science topic that I think it would be nice to explain in a visual way. Or, mm -hmm. yeah. So. yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I saw, for example, you have a series called DTRH. What, yeah. is, what is that? So DTRH stands for Did This Really Happen? Um, and it's actually a project I joined... Uh, maybe about a year ago now, but it's not my project. Uh, it was started a few years ago, actually, by a group of researchers. Uh, they had a different illustrator then. And what they started doing was creating comics, uh, telling stories of everyday sexism in science. So the stories are sent to the project by anyone, like through the website, uh, which is didthisreallyhappen.net. You can send a story of a situation that happened to you or a situation that you saw uh, at the workplace or whatever, at a conference, and then it gets turned into a comic. So I joined the project about a year ago because the other illustrator uh, didn't have the time anymore. And so kind of every two weeks normally we release a new comic based on a story submitted by someone. And we are very careful to um, like we're always going back to the author making sure that the comic is a true representation of the story so we don't want them to be like made up stories we want them to we want the people that see the comics to know that this actually did happen and the project is called did this really happen because that tends to be people's reaction they will see it and be like really is this like a true thing that happened and it's still most people still find it very shocking so we're trying to mm -hmm start the conversation these things happen to women in the science working environment all the time they're exposed to a lot of casual sexism so let's highlight it and let's talk about it and hopefully let's change things um you were mentioning obviously that the um the flat type is more of like a, a way for you to express your artistic side but i also saw on twitter that um you did an illustration Correct me if I'm wrong for a nature journal or something mm. that 
was a, a very beautiful drawing of the solar system, right? So there was an article that was written by some colleagues uh, for Pi Day. And it was about how to measure or how to calculate rather Pi using the uh, planets. So they sent me at some point, uh, Fabian Wandsworth uh, sent me the article and said, would you create an illustration for this so that because we don't have a figure for this article it doesn't have any figures so could you create something and kind of gave me complete freedom which is really great I mean from my perspective you know it's like here's an article just do whatever you like and so I just sat down one evening and, and came up with something and it's really that kind of thing I find really fun to do it's not really it's a pretty abstract illustration really it's not meant to be you know a figure in the way that we tend to think of figures as scientists it's much more abstract than that but at the same time it's showing some of the concepts that are discussed in the article so it's kind of I find that a really nice type of illustration to make where you have some artistic freedom but you're also including scientific concepts in them it's a nice it's nice trying to find a balance I guess right and that brings me to my next question, which is, do you think that art can be used as a way of communicating science? Oh, definitely. I think, you know, there's like kind of a, a, a wide spectrum of ways in which you can use art. Um, I think making figures like the traditional, in the traditional sense, like figures for papers in itself, it's an art. Making good figures is not easy. I think we've all seen presentations and papers with figures where you're looking at it thinking what am I looking at I don't <laughs> understand when to me a figure should be the easy way into a paper actually and I think a lot of people do that too you look through the figures and you try to get the main concepts out so if you make really really good figures uh, it's gonna help you like, it's gonna help your science get out there mm. and then you can go from from there, from that kind of approach of trying to make your figures more accessible and, you know, using things like uh, color maps that represent data without introducing distortion into it and that are accessible uh, for people that have maybe color blindness. Um, and then you can take the kind of other extreme and say, well, for anything you're doing, for anything you're researching, you could create something that is closer to my illustration of the solar system where there is like an abstract element to it but that it grabs people's attention because grabbing people's attention is like the first step towards talking to them about some topic. So actually you can use pretty abstract art to communicate science because you can use it as a kind of opener. So I, I think it's just like, it's really good to see how many different ways people use art to communicate science. And I think partly because of social media now, like I follow accounts that do uh, geoscience musicals and kind of theater and things like that which I think is amazing mm -hmm. or people that uh, do art people that um, have podcasts like you do like there's lots of I think there's lots of dimensions to it it's not just illustration but there's lots of creative ways let's say to <laughs> communicate science yeah I definitely agree and like about what you mentioned you know of uh, making nice figures for papers me and Sylvia, we had this argument with a lot of different collaborators where it's kind of like, okay, we're, we're doing this figure. Let's make it look nicer, you know? <laughs> and it's like, we're always met with, sometimes met with, oh, but you can understand the figure. It's doing its job. 
But it's like, yeah, it's not just about that. It's about like drawing someone's attention, you know, it's about being like, mm. I don't know, you always appreciate looking at something that looks nice. It's kind of like having, you know, a tidy house or something, you know what I mean? Mm. Like it just makes you feel better. And that's going to make me maybe a little bit more open to assimilating the information that is being presented. That's my Yeah, opinion. definitely. I think there's kind of three dimensions too, or at least I try to tell students to making a figure. First is whether that figure is accessible. And that's, you know, that goes with things like, well, could somebody that is colorblind read your figure? If I print it in black and white, is it unreadable? Things like that. It needs to be accessible. The second is that it needs to represent data without bias. So that, like the easiest example, I think we've all seen it in Twitter. There's a lot of conversations around uh, using the rainbow color scale, which is widely used in science. And um, by now, I think we all should know that when you look at a figure that is, uh, or a map that is using rainbow, your eye is drawn to certain things and you're going to see things that maybe are not in the data because it's distorting the data. And there's no need to use that kind of color scale because now there's free resources like the color, the scientific color map suite that Fabio Cramery et al., um, produced and, and published and lots of color bars in there that are yeah. great alternatives so there's that and then the third one to me is what you were just saying that why not make a figure that is going to catch somebody's attention and interest them and make them want to know more about the work right why stop at making a figure that ah, it's okay it shows what it needs to when you could just do a little bit more and actually make something that is really going to help you um get your science further i guess so i think to me it's like those those three things should should always be considered at least yeah yeah for sure like you were speaking about uh, fabio's paper and i actually read it recently and presented it to my group when i was working at uh, fu berlin and the way i presented it was i took the ideas that the, the authors were um, were uh, proposing and I went through my figures of my old publications and I found a bunch of mistakes you know like things that I had not made in order to make the figures accessible and it's funny because I started with a very early paper the first paper I ever wrote and I'm like you see I made this very very bad mistake that made the figure um, unaccessible in, and in some cases you know bias towards um, mm. one data set and uh, things like that. And I was like, but you know, I was a young researcher. I didn't know any better, right? Surely after you know a few years of experience, I'm not gonna make this mistake again. And then I went to the last paper I published and it's like, yeah, sure, it improved, but it's still there. So it's definitely something you need to actively think about when mm. you're creating these figures. So it's good that you're teaching your students that you know I, I wish someone had taught me <laughs> well I'm trying I'm trying <laughs> I'm trying but no I've done that as well actually not long ago not that long ago and definitely after I had read the paper the Fabius paper um I was co-author in a paper and it got published and then I got a message from Fabio saying why did you use rainbow in this figure? And I was like, no, how embarrassing. Oh, I was so embarrassed because I knew about them. And it was that sort of, you know, I was a co-author then and I probably was had other things. I don't know. I won't make an excuse. But 
it just kind of, you know, you're so used to seeing figures using rainbow that you, you see it and you don't think it doesn't jump out to you. It's like, oh, this is the wrong color map. Now, luckily it does. Like the other day I at work, I was pointing out to, to a colleague that there's a figure in a presentation that we need to change. But yeah, still yeah. sometimes you make a mistake, but yeah, it's just need to keep uh, reminding ourselves and getting into the good habits, I guess. For sure. Um, I also think that another effective way of um, communicating science that isn't necessarily what people might, you know, think from the the traditional way of just publishing your data in a journal is finding creative ways to engage with the public. And that brings me to our fi final subject, which is the Quartet Nary card game, which was funded by the EGU public engagement grant, uh, which I heard of because I had also submitted a grant that was not funded. <laughs> so, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It has a happy ending. Um, what is the Quartet Nary card game and what was the inspiration for it? So that's another project that is not mine. I, I, just, <laughs> I just end up involved in things somehow. Um, so Quartet Nary was an idea that... Iris van Selst had. And I met her when I was an editor for the Geodynamics blog of the EGU. And she knew I was uh, illustrating and I liked illustrating. And then one day she said, I have this idea for a game. Can we talk about it and see whether you'd be interested? And foolishly, I said, it sounds great. Let's do it. And now we have to make a card game. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, like, and now I think of it as like, oh my God, I have to draw like 60 cards. It's, oh this is God. just such yeah. a task. But anyway, the idea behind the game is, a, is an educational game about the geological time scale. So it's a full deck of cards and there is uh, four cards. That's what is called quartet nary. Uh -huh. It's kind of a play on words. Um, that's four cards per geological period. So say... You take the Jurassic, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there will be four cards and each card is an important event from that period. Mm, okay. um, so the aim of the game is that you want to be able to collect as many full sets as possible. So you want to have as many sets as possible because you're trying to compose like a complete time scale, basically. Mm, so we are in the process of developing it. But very much like your podcast, again, it's a project that, yes, it got a bit of funding, not very much, uh, enough maybe to make a prototype of the game and something like this. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it's, it relies on our free time. So it relies on Iris being able to define what the events are going to be that are going to be featured and, and so on, and me drawing the cards. So it's kind of, it's moving for sure. And people can sign up for updates at the website, which is quartetnary.com or follow us on Twitter um, as well. And we hope, the hope, I'm going to say it here, so at least I said it <laughs> and then we have to do it. Um, the hope was that in the next EGU, we would have some prototypes that people could play. So then we could get feedback 
on the playability of the game. But that, of course, relies on me actually drawing like, yeah, like 60 cards. I think I've done like 15. So mm. there's a long way still to go. You still have some time before the next TG. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, um, obviously, I mentioned that we had a proposal that was not funded in the same round. But I have to say, I'm not even angry about that because when I saw your project, I was so excited about this game and I'm really, really looking forward to seeing it come to fruition. Like, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I understand, of course, this, uh, the situation you're in of having these extra projects, let's say, because that's also what our podcast is. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I just want to say, you know, like, I don't know, kind of give you a little support, let's say, you know, like a little, <laughs> Thanks. Like, yeah, let's go do it. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. I think I just need to get into the I think we all often take on too many things. I, yeah. I I'm mm -hmm. trying since last year actually to like I stopped editing for the geodynamics blog as it was one of the things I decided, okay, I'm gonna stop this so then I have less projects and I can actually put more uh time into them because um, at the moment, yeah, so, so did this really happen? Publishes comics every couple of weeks. Then there's Quartenary and there's Tectonica, which sometimes is really busy and there's a lot to do and sometimes it's a bit quieter, but it's kind of getting into the rhythm of things. I think I with Quartetnery, I definitely need to do something like try to create one card every week or something mm -hmm. like this and then just mm -hmm. get into that. I think Iris would be happy if I did that. She keeps messaging me and saying, can we meet about this? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, next week. But uh, yeah. yeah. That's a good idea. Create like some structure, you know, I, mm. me in my career, if I don't like, sometimes if I don't create like a little schedule or a, or a study plan or something, like I, ne I never get anything done. It doesn't um, happen. Yeah. Mm. The other thing that makes me not so upset of not getting funded it's because we took the reviewers' comments into consideration. We updated our proposal. And we also have exciting news to share with our audience, which is that me, Sylvia, and our colleagues at the Geology Podcast Network, we actually have been awarded the same grant that you guys have on this year's funding scheme. Great. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I'm really passionate about this project. And I think it's going to be really cool. Basically, it's an investigative podcast in the geoscience area. Ah, nice. So it's going to be like, there is no new information per se being presented, but it's just like a play on how the information is presented. So it's like a new format that I haven't seen yet in podcasting. So we'll see. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. And hopefully, hopefully can reach out to a very broad audience as well. So our last uh, segment of the podcast is something that we always do, which is to ask the same three questions at the end of every episode. Um, these questions are a little bit more personal. They're designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listener, and they allow us to compare experiences and opinions across all of the geoscience research fields. And the first question is, how did you first decide to become a geoscientist? Um. I don't know. I, I I get asked this. Well, this is a common question, I would say, when I've been asked this in other podcasts and such. <laughs> I don't have like a really inspirational story. I kind of stumbled upon geoscience, I suppose. So 
when I was younger, I, I trained as a classical pianist between the ages of four and 21. So completely different thing. I was playing, uh, you know, concerts and, and studying. And at some point I decided that I didn't want to pursue that as a career for various reasons. And so I was kind of at a point, maybe when I was like 16 or 17, that I thought, well, what do I want to do? Because that was a really huge part of my life and still mm -hmm. is. I still play. Mm -hmm. But um, and I knew I liked science. I knew I liked problem solving and kind of like that. I thought maybe I would want to go into scientific research. And then uh, when I was uh, in high school, my geology teacher was actually quite engaging i think it made it quite interesting and already then i thought that plate tectonics and geodynamics was really interesting so i ended up going to university and studied geoscience but at that point to be completely honest i wasn't 100 percent sure that's what i wanted to do it was kind of like well i know i don't want to pursue a career in music so let's try this and see how it goes and luckily it went really well and i I'm still doing that today, mm -hmm. but it was more that I kind of bumped into it. It was definitely not a, you know, a decision I was too confident about. Um, so the second question is, what are some of the specifics of the projects that you have at the present? Uh, so I'm a plate modeler or a well, I'm a geodynamicist, but specifically a plate modeler. So since my PhD, I should say since my PhD. Before my PhD, I was doing a lot of structural geology. I was doing analog modeling as well. But since my PhD, I started working on uh, developing techniques to build better plate models, particularly for the recent past. So 200 million years ago to present. So for the times where we have oceans and where we have oceanic lithosphere. Uh, I still do that. I moved from academia to industry now a couple of years ago. So a lot of what I do now is the, the part of the company where I work. Uh, we just do scientific research. And one of the things that we have is a global plate model that is kind of in constant revision. And we're always trying to improve it, make it better and develop new ways to constrain it. So now I don't just work in those 200 million years. I work for the entire length of, of the, that plate model, which is 2 billion. Mm -hmm. um, so what I do kind of ranges from uh, more regional work, like maybe some of our clients are very interested in a specific region and they ask us to improve the model for that region. Some other times it's uh, tasks that have more to do with like data science. So I do a lot of coding, mm -hmm. building tools that allow other colleagues to uh, take a lot of data that they couldn't manually make sense of and actually doing something with it. So it's kind of the two sides. Part of it is, is very much research, geodynamic research in the way I was doing when I was mm -hmm. a postdoc. And then another part is kind of coding, developing tools, a bit of machine learning, AI and things like that, which is kind of new in some ways for me. So it's kind of exciting to, to just learn something new and try to do something and no, spend sure. some of the days of my week thinking i don't know what i'm doing but <laughs> it's okay i'll figure it out um, yeah it's not it's uh, yeah like i've done that where i'm changing fields quite often since the end of my phd and i feel like i'm i'm much more confident about that now like at the beginning i was like man i don't know what to do like how am i going to do it and now my my attitude is more like i don't know what to do 
but you know, I'll figure it out and I'll learn, you know, so yeah. it's nice. Yeah, I think that like there is a perception that as you get more experience, you do know what you're doing and that's completely false. I think I think what you become better at is managing the feeling of not knowing what you're doing when you're phd you don't like that feeling you're like oh i should know what i'm doing i should know how to solve this problem later on you're like yeah i have no clue but that's okay let's that you know uh finally what do you enjoy doing when you're not geosciencing um drawing illustrating (laughs) (laughs) um playing piano which i still do quite a lot um other than that i do a lot of road cycling so I live in the countryside in Oxford. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like if I take my bike from my front door within a couple of minutes, I'm in like the countryside outside of a town. So it's quite peaceful. There's not much traffic. So um, yeah, n- at least not so much during the winter, but the rest of the year I'm I'm on the bike a lot. It's kind of like thinking time as well. I often mm-hmm. find that I come up with like ideas for, you know, quartetnery cards or illustrations and things when I'm just like out on the bike. Very nice. Uh, Lucia, how can our listeners stay up to date with what you're doing or get in contact with you? Obviously, you mentioned a bunch of resources, which we'll add to the show notes. But specifically to contact you, what would be the best way? Uh, Probably just message me on Twitter. I'm quite active there. I'm not always tweeting, but like I I do use Twitter quite a lot. And that's at Dr. Perez Diaz Mm -hmm. Um, or my illustration one, uh, which is the flat type. I think that's probably the best way, um, yeah. really. Perfect. We'll, we'll make sure to put them in the show notes too, so people should definitely go and check it out. So no, They can I, also, I forgot. <laughs> I forget, I often forget I have a website. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I, I was going to say, actually. That's <laughs> yeah, what I was so going to say. Because that's also how you contacted re- me. Yeah, so yeah. that I also have a website. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a contact form. We'll that's add that to the option. show notes as well. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah. I find your website so nice, honestly. It's one of my favorite ones. Yours and the uh, oh, headers. Man, I like... It's my inspiration <laughs> to try to go there some someday, but uh, mine is like not close yeah. to that at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they take a long time to do. And now yeah. I feel like I finally, like last year, I think I put the time into it. Mm. And now I keep thinking, oh, I really should update it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just yeah. like bottom of the list. For sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having the time and uh, taking the time and chatting with us. And uh, like I imagined, you know, I had so many things I wanted to know from you. Uh, I've always been kind of like seeing you around, you know, on the on Twitter and on the internet. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and getting to know about your uh, your work. Yeah, no, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, hopefully we can meet uh, did you when you're gonna yeah, present your game. Yeah, that would be game. nice. <laughs> Oh, definitely. You can come and like try to play it and then okay. tell me how it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, we'll do, we'll do. This podcast is brought to you by the Geology Podcast Network. The GPN is sponsored by Traveling Geologists. Follow Traveling Geologists on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologists.com or wherever you get your podcasts.